Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here on a Monday morning, but glad you could join us. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, we will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their businesses to success in an ever-competitive business climate. So pour yourself a hot cup and enjoy the show. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee uh, edition of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Al Gore. I'm here with Jim Cantrell. Jim is the founder of several entrepreneurial startups, including Vector Launch, Stratspace, and Vintage Exotics Competition Engineering. It's probably why we're here. Right. (laughs) Uh, He was on the founding team of Moon Express, a private company attempting to land on the lunar surface, and the founding on the founding team of SpaceX, where he was the first VP of business development. How's it going, Jim? That's great. That was such a short introduction of what has been a long career for you. I'm old. Uh, I mean, the, the, the things that, that you've done, particularly in, 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 the, in the space industry, um, everything from launching a, uh, a solar sail from a, n- a nuclear sub, a Russian right. nuclear sub, right. Uh, One of the to, more unusual things I've done. Yeah, yeah. To no, to meeting Carl Sagan, yeah. to working with Elon Musk, yeah. to starting all these companies, to honestly help inspire the entrepreneurial space, but also being a part of it at the same time. Yeah. Um, so we probably can't go into to everything, but let's start at where are we right now? Yeah. What 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 are you doing today? This is an unusual place to uh, have this kind of a podcast. We're at La, La Junta Raceway in La Junta, Colorado, and uh, it's a SCCA race, which is the Sports Car Club of America, and uh, I'm competing in the T2 class for the championship that happens in uh, October, so we've got to do a number of, of races and uh, to compete and, and qualify, and so I'm driving a Porsche 997 uh, in this particular class. Um, are you mainly a, an old school car guy, a new car guy? You know, if it goes fast and it has wheels, I like it. I, yeah. I've got everything from brand new stuff to really old stuff. And we race vintage cars. Uh, you know, I've, I've got one that's a 64 Corvette that we run in the Monterey Historics every year, which is, you know, arguably the biggest uh, historic race in the world to this Porsche, which is pretty new. So, and uh, the stuff I drive on the streets, you know, most of it's new because yeah. it's more reliable. Yeah. If you're going to Frankenstein a vehicle together, what kind of features would you put together in a, well, in a car? If it's a race car, it's one thing. If it's a street car, it's another. So, frankly, for me, a street car... The best thing in the world is a truck. So, yeah. <laughs> and I drive a one-ton Dodge truck, so that's really kind of where I'm at. I love diesels, and, uh, you know, they're so efficient. They're good at pulling, and, uh, you know, they, they just they just get great gas mileage. So, uh, in fact, I've got an old Jeep. Uh, it's a 2006 uh, Wrangler that I'm going to actually put a Cummins diesel in it just because, well, just because. Yep. So, yep. Uh, but if it were a race car, it's a different story. You want everything to be light. You want it to be reliable. Depends on how you race it, right? If mm-hmm. it's a road race car, some of them are sprint races that go 20, 30 minutes. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, 24-hour cars. So if you want to survive 24 hours, you got to have reliability. And uh, so sometimes you you balance that, that weight out with the, you know, with the uh, performance. Do you have your eye on any, like, future cars coming out or anything you want to get that you don't have? You know, uh, 
I, I'm dying to get one of these AMG GT4 race cars. So mm. they uh, they look kind of kind of funky, but you see them in IMSA and the 24 Hours of Le Mans and that. Yeah, I, I have one for the street. You know, it's a GTS street car. Yeah, best one of the best cars I've ever had. Right. Yeah, and uh, it's what a 2016, and and it's every bit as fast as these race cars out on the track. But it's scary because you have no safety equipment in it, so you you, you don't really want to drive it that fast. Yeah, it's really not built for that. I mean, the, the cars have gotten so good in performance that they're they're almost unsafe. Have Have you seen Ferrari versus Ford? Oh yeah, that's a great movie. That scene where the race car driver brings in the CEO of Ford and yeah. takes him on a lap and just yeah. scares the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah. I we assume, call that the brown zone. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, until seeing that scene, you know, because I have experiences in my life, I'm like, and people maybe tell me about my industry or something, I'm like, oh, you don't know real how it really is. And then seeing that, I was like, I don't think I really know how racing really is. No, it's different than you think. You know, that, that scene was pretty good because it kind of gives you a sense like the first time I went out in a road race car with with a professional driver, and I I was it was a Miata of all things, and I and I thought, wow, I, I can't believe this car will actually do this. Yeah, you know, it was just the proof of concept for me because I'm an engineer, right? And so, oh, it can do this, then you know, it's now it's an extension of you know what else can it do? And so what you saw in that movie with that scene was really how brutally fast those cars are. But, you know, they're also very unforgiving. So they have to be in the hands of somebody that really understands them. And it, it's not something that happens over, overnight, you know, to, to learn how to, how to drive these cars. There's some of it's talent and a lot of it's just seat time. And uh, so, so you get this sense that, that watching that, you know, that it's a very frightening thing. And it's a very frightening thing because he wasn't expecting that. And I've taken people out on the track in, in my street cars um, and taken them for drives and, They'll either have that reaction or they'll just get thrilled beyond thrilled, you know. So yeah, so yeah, it's it's always fun to do that, actually. Yeah. So what what I've kind of followed you, you you've talked about from high school that this is kind of your passion is racing, but going back to like when you're a kid, six, seven, eight, nine, w- was racing or space in your mind or space was space wasn't racing was yeah. yeah. We're just from watching TV, your dad, or just it just that was just you. You know, the earliest pictures of me when I was a kid, when I was like two and three years old, I had a car right in front of me, mm-hmm. right? And, and my grandparents used to take me to get the pictures because they were the only ones that had patience enough with me. And uh, I had to have a car or I wouldn't let them take a picture of me. Yeah. And so I was just crazy about cars from the time I was born. I don't know why. Um, and, you know, it wasn't particularly that my, my family was into cars. They all liked cars, but nobody like me was into cars. And... Um, so you know, it was you know getting the little uh, uh, getting the little plastic go kart you can ride around, you know, and then and then uh, I started building soapbox derbies, and we lived on this hill in Southern California. It was a yep. it's an old chicken farm, and so we had this nice hill you could really get going fast and cheat death, you know. So I started dangerous hill. <laughs> it really was actually, you know. Yeah. But I, here I am, I survived, you know, fifty some odd years later. Yeah, but. You know, I started stealing wheels off of the lawnmowers and, and things like that. And yep. I drove my, my father crazy. My mother put up with it. Uh, but then that eventually got to the point where I found a go-kart and I bought it. And, uh, you know, well, actually my, my parents bought it for $20. And, uh, you know, got that running. And I started driving them. And then I started racing them. And then, of course, you know, this is like heroin. It right. just goes from, from 
little to big to bigger. And yep. uh, by the time I got done with that, you know, I had one with a Suzuki 300cc motor in it. And uh, yeah. we were just tearing things up. It was a shifter cart. And so it just, just went on from there, you know. So so cars have always been what, what sort of keep me motivated to stay healthy. I'm not as healthy as I'd like to be, but yep. I'd probably be a lot less healthy if I didn't have to pass physicals every year to to get in these things and uh it's it's what's actually motivated me to to do well in life so i could afford this well and also to race too you have to be aggressive um every year we do a fun thing with with our firm and one of the times we went go-kart racing and just that that level of focus and 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 that aggression but you talk i heard you talk about an interview about the different culturals where maybe in in france they have more aggression where americans have maybe more confidence but it also has to be balanced too because you can't have aggression so much that you're you're out of control um do you think racing and i'm just speculating had that controlled aggression that translated over into entrepreneurship yeah it's it's very much like entrepreneurship you know that it's funny because the entrepreneurship came later, right? The racing came first. Yeah. The entrepreneurship came later. But in racing, you know, there's a couple of things that are key. One is preparation. You know, yeah. here we are. We spend, you know, 40 minutes out on the racetrack today. But we spent, you know, a week preparing for this. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've got Joe here who's checking the car out. And, we, you know, we know what to look for. And so you have to be prepared. You have to have everything you have to have spares. There's a lot of preparation that goes into it that you don't realize until you do it. The second thing is you have to be prepared on the track to be lucky, right? So so that's yeah. a balance of aggression, and it's a balance of knowing what lucky looks like, right? So, so you know, if somebody spins in front of you, that can either be a disaster or, or a great opportunity. And uh, yesterday we had a couple of cars. One spun and the other one spun right into them, and both of them totaled their cars. Really, that was bad, right? Yeah. So, so you, you know, you, it takes that split second judgment, just like an entrepreneur. Then the most important thing is you can't ever give up. You know, when you just when you think things are over, sometimes here they are, and just when you think you've won, things happen and, and you, you've lost it all. You know? Yeah. So, so it's there's a lot that's very very similar there in terms of the mentality and the spirit and. Uh, and the aggression's a big part of it, you know. So you have to be aggressive, but you have to be, have measured aggression. Yep. And it's like I was talking to you before we did this about driving this particular car. If you're overly aggressive, you're going to hurt yourself and everybody else with you. And and so you, you just can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's key because I think some people take business or leadership and they see aggression and, and they push it too far because it's such a key characteristic yeah. it's also in, in, in sports too i remember yeah. some of the best plays were after the coach yelled at me right and then all of a sudden like <laughs> i just blitzed and got a sack even yeah. though it wasn't called because he just yelled at me yeah. but you can't be overly aggressive that you shoot yourself in the foot That's or you right. shoot other people in the foot too right. um so it's a fine line and it just seems that racing the kind of pairs with that because you have to be in control of this massively powerful <laughs> thing yeah your um, your life's on the line literally yeah i mean it and that's that's the other part that I don't say often, but you know I feel more alive out there in this race car cheating death than anything else I do in life. Yeah, it, it, it's it's an odd thing, and uh, if I don't do it every now and then, I get really itched to go do it, and it's yeah. it's it's a terrible it's a terrible habit to have to have. Yep. Know. Well, it, it's not as I mean it's dangerous, but. I don't know. At least you're not skydiving or anything like that. But um, <laughs> See, I don't like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are some 
exciting entrepreneurial projects. What's the most exciting entrepreneurial projects you've been on? Or was there a time in a particular project where you thought this was exciting or scary or you're going off the tra- rails and you had to pull it back? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of different kinds of examples. So still almost to this day, one of the best professional experiences I, I've ever had was very early in my career when I was actually part of the French Space Agency and we were building this this Mars balloon. And the balloon itself would would heat up during the day and so it would go fly into the sky. On Earth or on, or on in Mars. theory on Mars? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. so we were building it so it would do this. Yep. So it would fly around Mars, and then at night as the sun went down, it would it would cool and it would come back mm-hmm. down the surface. So there was this this thing we call a snake that I invented, which is the reason I ended up at the French Space Agency. And it had a, a radar payload, and it dragged along the ground, and it was constructed such that it wouldn't get stuck in the rocks. And uh, it was kind of a it's kind of an accidental invention on our right. part. You know, it was overlapping cones made of metal. And uh, so, so we went over to France, and uh, we, I, I helped them build that. And so we came back one, one summer to do the testing of a scaled flight model that would fly in the simulated night mode, you know, near the surface on Earth so that we could yeah. test the dynamics of the whole thing. And so we had, we had this Russian, or they were Soviets back then, the yeah. Soviet group, because this was a Soviet mission to Mars, we had the French, who I worked for, and then we had the American crew, who was partly NASA, it was partly the Planetary Society. And so we, we went out, we had scouted ahead, and we went out and found the sand dunes and lava fields out in, out in the California desert. And so we set up there, and uh, I was on a chase crew to, to <laughs> capture the, the, the balloon. So, you know, five miles uprange, or I guess it was closer to a mile uprange, they would release the balloon and we would try to position ourselves to capture it and we had these uh, Caltech uh, Suburbans and there was like four of us and I was in command of the capture team and uh, you know the the wind was supposed to come towards us and it went to the east of us and so we had to reposition and uh, and it was going fast really fast the wind just picked up and and shifted and here we are uh, flying out through the through the, uh, the 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 dunes, you know, in these suburbans and catching air, yeah. And I had some of the Soviets in the back, you know, high level guys, you know, and they were they were laughing their ass off and yeah. and uh, saying "opla" every time we went <laughs> over the top of the dunes, you know. So you have moments like that that you just you just never forget. It's like this, it's it's a lot like a race, you know, that you, you you've got this target, you're after something, you you've got an accomplishment, you're after. We did capture it, everything was great, you know. Um, the second thing was um, when Elon Musk, you know, decided he wanted to build a rocket. Mm. That was like su- such a deep breath kind of thing where you just think, "What? What are we? How can we do this?" You know, twenty years ago, that was insane to say we're going to build our rocket ourselves. You know, yep. and here we are, like three or four days away from him launching humans to the space station on on this rocket that essentially is a descendant of what we worked on twenty years ago. So, so, you know, I didn't believe that would work, and that's why I left. I just couldn't see it working. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of faith in what we do uh, in engineering in particular that sometimes you just don't have it, you know. And, and that's the thing with Elon is if, if you're not with him 105% or 110%, then, then you better not be with him, right, because yep. life is miserable. Um, it, it's so interesting, too, because it, with Elon and some of these other people, you don't you don't know what you can or cannot do until you do it. And you don't have, 
I mean, I'm sure you didn't have all the answers right away, right? No. You, you know, you started helping them out, getting Space Cowboys together. From I'm sure some of them were government, some of them were, were private. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it, it's just so interesting to, to see and to see now that now is the time to try. And there are times to yeah. try. Because it's always time to try. Exactly. Yeah, it always is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's just, Elon has stretched our sense of what we can accomplish, right? Right. And so, that, you know, you think about what, he didn't found Tesla. He actually yep. was a big investor. Martin Eberhardt was the founder. But Elon's vision was to take it from what Martin which was had, which was a really a small electric car company that was boutique, to something that could compete with GM and Ford. And again, that was the other thing I thought, there's no way you do this, Elon. So his great contribution to us as a society is we can do these things. Right. And and, and the same thing with, with SpaceX. Obviously, he's very smart um, and very driven and, and has a keen sense of maybe what to do. He does. But, but the, the team that was helped put together by you yep. and continued throughout this, you can't do it without the team. And the same thing with Steve Jobs. Right. Steve Jobs, obviously brilliant, obviously <laughs> driven, obviously knew kind of the next thing to do again. But... I remember, you know, I read his book, Walter Isaacson, and in yeah. the movie, there's that famous scene where they go, Steve, what do you even do here? You don't program, <laughs> you don't design, you don't code, you don't do shit because they're mad at him because, yeah. you know, he's, he was an a-hole some of the times. Yeah. Um, and I, he's like, those I, accusations leveled against me too. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the conductor, but yeah. it, 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 it does take that team. It does. To get it done, yeah. and and the possibilities are, are more open than they've ever been before. Yeah, what you look for is what I call two plus two equals eight, right? So if mm. you put two people together, you know, is the sum of them together worth more, or capable of more than them them by themselves? Yep. And that's the magic that you start to look for, and that's the magic that's entrepreneurship, and that's the magic that Elon taps into. He's he's, yeah. he's brilliant at that, and he, he's he's just like Steve Jobs. He's really 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 harsh really harsh yeah but it's hard to fault him because he's harsh in pursuit of a vision that he's very clear about yeah that he believes in to the point where he's all in you know he, he's 100 it's like the joke about the chicken and and the pig you know the chicken yeah. is an observer of breakfast the pig is all in for the baby yeah yep right? <laughs> yes elon's all in on this stuff if it goes down he goes down and that's what he'll tell you yeah. Right. So, so there's a certain amount of respect that goes with that, and and people line up behind them, and they, you know, they're they're like good soldiers, and and you know, and, and military, they 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 put their lives in each other's hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, transitioning away from private, more into public. Okay. NASA. Uh, NASA kind of has new life. Uh, yeah. New directive. A new administrator. New administrator. <laughs> Do you like where they're going, or let's say you were ahead of NASA, would you change what they were doing? Like I, I would change some of the focus of what they're doing, but I want your perspective. Wow, that's a really great question. So I, I know Jim Bridenstine, the, the head NASA administrator, really well, and I, I consider him a friend. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want his job, honestly, uh, because if you I, could do it without all the pressure, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of like saying, uh, you know, if you could fly without any of the weight of the aluminum to weigh you down, it, it yeah. just yeah okay that's an easy answer but the real answer is that this is a this is a job that has a balance of power he's he's sitting at you know all these different forces that are mostly political and some economic mm -hmm. that are forcing him into things that that you know are 
completely counter to what NASA should be doing. So I interviewed for the number two slot there in the human space flight. And within five minutes, it was pretty clear to me that I didn't want the job. And within 10 minutes, when they asked me what I thought of some of their, their Keystone programs, it was pretty clear they didn't want me in there. So, so it, was, it was really an eye-opener for me that NASA, at the highest levels of leadership, has to deal more with the politics and the policy of you know, jobs in Alabama, jobs in Maryland, mm-hmm. jobs in California, rather than what's the right mission for NASA. Now, that aside... So, so if I were the NASA administrator, yep. despite all the politics, I would I would make NASA more mission focused, and I think that's where they're becoming, and I think that's what Jim Bridenstine is doing. So he's saying, look, our mission is is to explore the moon. Our mission is to explore the solar system. Our mission is to put humans into space and do things that nobody's done, and eventually, our mission is to put humans on Mars. Now, private sector may beat him to all that stuff, yep. but he's not saying our mission is to build the biggest, baddest rockets in the world which is, in some people's eyes, the thing that NASA should be doing. And so for the longest time, NASA has tried to compete with the private sector because in the early days, nobody could do what NASA did, so they did it. And, but that went on over decades and created really a, an industry of NASA uh, that was very inefficient. So mm-hmm. I like to say, you know, if NASA, the classic NASA, if it could create an iPhone and use them, for their own use, they do it, right? Because yeah. it kept them busy and it right. was interesting. So that's, I, I think the same is true of like Defense Department as well. It's about mission focus, right? Mm-hmm. And and defense is much better at that than NASA. NASA, I think, could learn a lot from the defense side of saying, here's our mission and here's what we ought to be doing and, and let's not think about spending our scarce resources on stuff that other people can do. SpaceX, for example, took $750 million under the COTS program and they created the Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsule with that. Okay, mm-hmm. And that was creating resupply of the space station. NASA tried to do the same thing with the program they had they spent $50 billion on. You got a 50x efficiency on use of capital there. That's a big duh, right? Yeah. We, we, we should be doing more and more of that. And this is precisely the point I was making when I interviewed for, for this job where the, the air in the room just went out, <laughs> the oxygen in the room just went out. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm done. Well, would you change or add some missions? For example, of course. Um, one, one thing that, that maybe I think about is it's hard to do nuclear development because it's, it's national right. security. Well, NASA could be doing that in space Correct. easier than any, right. you know, you, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, no, so, nobody in the private sector is going to do nuclear propulsion. Right. So, so this is a perfect thing for NASA to do. Yeah. You, you, you want the government agencies to do the things that the, the private sector has no inherent incentive of doing, mm. right? Or you want the private sector to do things that they're inherently more efficient at, right? Yep. So there's a, that's what I call the public-private partnership. And, and so the mission is always that thing that there's no inherent public commercial uh, incentive to do. So, so, you know, there's no inherent... Uh, inherent uh, um, uh, reason for commercial space to go out and look at Jupiter and take pictures. Right. There, there's no market for it, right? Yeah. So, but there is a market for moving bits around the Earth uh, for commercial purposes. If you want to watch TV or listen to the radio through satellite and so on, so that's obviously not a NASA NASA kind of job either. So, so that there, there's a very obvious split there. 
And there's a lot of things that I would like to see NASA be more aggressive on in terms of technology, in terms of how the um, how the t- how the mission plays out. You know, a little more aggressive on going to Mars. It in a way, it's kind of a shame if Elon Musk and SpaceX end up at Mars before NASA does. But which is probably likely. It's very likely. Extremely. I think it's extremely likely. Yeah. So so that's kind of tells you where our space agency has gotten to. Yeah, through no fault of Jim's, for example. I right. mean, it's it's evolved. It's a it's a creature of politics and money that creates this this present situation we have. Yeah, and I think Jim in himself, besides you know the moon mission, um, just the way he conducts himself and on Twitter has just kind of livened up the the whole community yeah. as well. Yeah. I've just noticed that there's you know a little intangible that yeah. you don't and he has it he, he's a surprising guy so he's very uh, very calm quiet you know when you meet him you know you, you might say this guy's a real nerd right sure yeah, he's worked uh, for nasa <laughs> well right i mean he was uh, he was a navy pilot uh when i first met him and then he was a congressman yeah from oklahoma yeah, and that's how i got to know him when he was a congressman from oklahoma and you know he, he's very interested in in a lot of technical things he flew rocket powered airplanes for a while for rocket racing league um but he's been extremely good as the NASA administrator. He doesn't he doesn't get political, and he was accused of being very political because he took what I consider a libertarian stance on NASA should buy data from the private sector, and even some of the Republicans didn't like that, you know. So so he thought that made a lot of sense, but he's not turned out to be that political administrator. He's turned out to be a very effective. Uh, guy who who is not even a technocrat, you know, he, he he really blends the politics with the technology extraordinarily well. It, it surprised even me. Yeah, know? are there any things in the private space sector that you think um, that you're excited that they're doing that they're tackling besides SpaceX, or that you see opportunities that someone should maybe work on trying to solve? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So. So you go back to the military and, you know, the mission of the military. Uh, we're, we're living in a constantly evolving world. And what you find if you've dealt with the military for very long in space is we're always fighting the last battle. All right. We're trying to salt, We're trying to develop new systems that would make our last war easier, better. Yeah, yeah. The outcome would be better. So so what what the commercial guys seem to be better at is not necessarily anticipating the, the evolution of the force, but creating the technology that addresses the mission quicker and so what i'm starting to see in uh, there's a company i'm working with right now in michigan called r2 space where they're actually doing commercial based uh in you know uh, imagery and surveillance Mm -hmm. for the military basically creating the assets and leasing them back to the military so that the parts of the military that aren't traditionally able to access that kind of data because it's Consider national technical means, you know, highly classified and so forth. These are targeted at their tactical needs, and they get it done for a tenth of the cost. Right. So, so that kind of um, that kind of future, I think, is going to be very, very big in in the military. That the commercial space is saying, "Hey, we can do this, and we can be creative in how we finance it." And it's a good it's a good deal for the taxpayer because we as taxpayers don't have to pay as much. And we get the military focused on what they should be doing, which is defending the nation. Yeah. And, and that almost kind of brings us back to our conversation before on, on these people like Musk and Jobs that can focus to, hey, we're going to do this one thing. We're going to make this one computer this way. Sometimes when you work with the government, I used to be in the military. 
and I work with uh, city planning officials all the time. So you get and it. <laughs> everyone has their opinion. Right. And to solve everyone's opinion makes something crappy. Right. Where the public se- private sector can say, we're solving this one extremely well. Be right. nimble. They've done it with the Pentagon, um, the, the computer system that now links the FBI. They tried doing it for, I want to say $150 million, but it was probably billion. Right. And then a small agile group did it for you know a tenth of the price. Right. Yeah. Too too many rules regulations that it, what's the saying the the way to hell is paved with good intentions yeah the road to hell yeah. is paved with good intentions yes yeah <laughs> um, so as space space will become more and more private just because they're going to be agile yeah. and and these things like you're saying are going to happen well there's economic reasons to be there yeah so what would a space government untethered from Earth look yeah. like in function? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's one of the things I talked to the Libertarian Convention about is, you know, what, what happens when mankind ventures out off the, off the earth? So, so it brings about this basic question of, you know, what inherent rights do governments have? And mm-hmm. if you, you know, I don't want to become political because I'm, I'm not actually not a terribly political person. Right. I'm, uh, I'm all about liberty and individual liberty because I'm an entrepreneur. But if you start to think about and it's very valid with this COVID thing going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, is the government at the service of the people, and, or is it something that's there to govern the people? And it's a fundamental split whether or not you're on one side or the other. And so you start to entertain arguments about, you know, what would a government on Mars look like, and where would you derive that that basic logic of why there ought to be a government on Mars? We're here at a racetrack right now. Yeah. What we're doing is very deadly. Okay. And it's people could get hurt. They do get hurt. We probably lose a dozen people a year out of the sport. Not a lot, but it's an assumed risk that we all take. We have our own rules. We enforce them. We don't have any government body that that gets involved in this. So there's no reason for the government necessarily to get involved in risky things. Right. We can regulate, self-regulate it. So, so yeah, a space, a space. Uh, uh, a community, I think, becomes a libertarian community. It becomes like racing, that you have rules. You have to have rules. You have people together. You have to have rules. Yeah. So, but but the rules are are you know much more democratic in the in the traditional sense of the Greek democracy than than uh, than a lot what we see right today on Earth. Yeah. What's your opinion of Space Force? And I'll ask why. Because <laughs> when it originally came out, I was actually like, no, I you know really yeah. against it because i thought this is just a, a, a way for them to impose more rules once whoever makes whatever up there and people start going up there now you're gonna have to pay a, a space safety tax you know and i'm just extrapolating right um i'm excited for the new netflix series space force i think <laughs> that will be funny <laughs> but what is your opinion of of this new a good, development? good question so first time i was asked that was on national tv and i just said, well, I'm against it, you know, because I'm I'm a small government person, yeah, and uh, it was already being, you know, space defense is an obvious need. It's a mission area yep. that needs needs to be addressed, and it's being addressed by the Air Force. And I didn't see why creating another branch of the military made sense. So, like you, however, seeing how it's evolved, it's become an opportunity to actually rebirth a lot of the things that the Air Force has done poorly. And so in that sense, if it's used to reform government and government acquisition, I'm actually for it. I but know. It, it, my mind has kind of changed. Yeah, me similar. too. Yeah. Me too. And uh, I took all the lumps. I took a lot of lumps from the Trump administration over it. But, yeah. 
you know, I, I still stand by the basic idea. We don't need it, but if we're going to reform government with it, you know, I'm I'm supportive. It's easier to do it starting a new. It is. Yep. Yeah. Then then going again. Um, if if you could give a piece of advice to your 20 year old self, <laughs> what would you what would you say? <laughs> don't marry that woman. Would be the first one. <laughs> And then the second one would be, uh, you know, have more faith in yourself. Yep. 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 So, so, you know, a lot of times we don't, especially when we're young, right? We don't have the experience to know that we can actually do these things. Mm -hmm. And it always looks scarier than it really is. And so for me personally, you know, I, I was, I always thought I was pretty brave, but I really wasn't as I've gotten older. I've gotten a lot more analytical and a lot more comfortable with, with going out onto uncomfortable areas. So so I think that's probably true of a lot of people. I know my own children. I have I have six children, believe yep. it or not, and uh, all of them suffer from the same thing, you know. And I keep telling them, believe in yourself. You know, you've you got to believe in yourself. That's the thing they need, you know. Um, I have this uh, professor that has found me on Facebook from college, and he, you know, he's a math professor, and it was – a low point in my math career, you know, my, my math career, my college career. Yep. And uh, and he he just kept telling me, I know you can do it. I remember him, Lance Littlejohn. You, you you can do it. You can do it. And it made a hell of a difference to me. And uh, it's that it's that voice that we've got to give our young people. You know, is look, you know, have faith in yourself. You can do it. Yeah. Don't 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 be scared away. You know, I, the, the worst you can do is give up. The the same thing happened in college in my second year. I actually thought I was pretty good at architecture i was never overly cocky but they, they posted the grades and i loved it because they posted them like yeah. just just on the wall and i was the second to last oh, and i go that hurts yep i go i must be terrible and professor sydney ernest who who i love and you know i still know her she's like no you're not terrible <laughs> you're not bad i was like i feel like yeah, i'm terrible but you're, you're, you know you're the top five percent of the of the population right yet, right yet you're last in that it's like being out on the racetrack here Yep. You know, being last in this group is not bad. Yeah. And I ended up at the end winning. So um, every architecture school, they, they there's an Alpha uh, Chi Rho Award that goes to the best student that has the most promise. Yeah. So I got that in the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in the beginning. Good for you. Yeah. For um, you. I have two quotes because I think they're pertinent to what you just said. And I wonder if you agree with them or want to elaborate. One is from Alan Key. Um, and he said, Jeff Bezos likes to say this. A change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. <laughs> and then this one's unattributed, but I've heard it a couple times. Um, effort is worth 20 IQ points. It's probably true. So th the perspective on a problem and oh. your attitude and effort towards it counts for a lot. Is Perspective really is. You know, one of the things I like to do is take long drives across the country because... Yeah, I, I, my thought process opens up, my perspective changes, and traveling around the world, you see the w different way people live. It changes your perspective about things, and when you go to solve a problem, you just have more tools in the toolbox. Is yeah. what it amounts to. No, I, I think the quote's quite right on. Awesome. Well, I think we'll end it there. Anything you want to leave people with? Any uh, place to come follow you, or anything you want to shout yeah, out? Yeah, so I'll let you, you wrap it up. Follow me on Twitter, James N. Cantrell, and. Uh, Again, I promise not to be political uh, because I'm not. Um, and then uh, jimcantrell.com uh, is just my site about what, I, what I'm doing. I hope to finish my book here this year. Uh, uh, on, awesome. Uh, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, called Breaking All the Rules. So it 
talks a lot about what we've talked about here today. When when is that going to come out? So I was supposed to get it done about right now, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm but you to, had to do this interview, so yeah, right. This yeah. interview put me off. Yeah. No, it's you know life gets in the way, but uh, I started a new company and so on, and uh, so the the book's about three quarters done. So I, I've yeah. got to find an editor for it, and I'm I'm anxious to get it out the door. Can can you talk about this new company, or is sure. it still? Yeah, sure. tell us about it. Phantom Space. So, okay. Um, started this. Um, you know, I left Vector in August of uh, 2019 and uh, spent about three weeks in my swimming pool just sort of getting perspective yep. and uh, thinking about things things that went wrong, things that, that worked, things that didn't work. And, uh, you know, I still was left with this idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the transportation system into space is really lacking, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I got together with uh, one, of, one of the guys that I've worked with a long time, Mike D'Angelo, and uh, we decided... Basically, we wanted to be in business together, mm-hmm. first and foremost, and uh, that we, uh, we we thought about you know of all the things that uh, that we've learned what you know what would make sense, and uh, so you know we, we were left with the sense that there was a lot of learning that we had both had from Vector that we needed to take forward into a new new company. So so we're focused on building the infrastructure for space, kind of like uh, if you will, it'd be it'd be similar to. Uh, what Cisco does for the internet we're doing for space transportation so it's not just rockets but it's all about satellites and it's all about uh, in space propulsion and so forth and so we've we've already cash flow positive we got a large satellite contract we got about four more that are coming along and uh, we've just closed a round of financing so that we can start down some of our our bigger projects so uh, we're going to try to be quiet about it uh, because we'd rather do than than say so yeah so uh, just just keep your eye out, and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully it will be uh, something that, that that is successful. It's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'm interested in following it because the more you know, know about technology, the more the more you realize how deep it is and how it takes so much to run these systems. And yeah. and if you're tackling that in space, I'm sure there's an there's going to be an an equal expansion in the the amount of behind the scenes if i'm interpreting this correctly the behind the scenes infrastructure and connection that needs to happen yeah it's to immense. make it it's immense to make it so easy that we can just you know complain that our iphone is slow when really right. like you're texting four thousand miles you know and it took right and and so the way i see the space transportation system today is much the way the automotive industry was 100 years ago there were a lot of players 100 years ago in the automotive industry they ended up being you know maybe five six seven major mm-hmm. companies in the world that built cars uh the same is true in space systems and uh right now we're in that period where there's a lot of creativity there will be a shakeout obviously spacex has become one of the they're sort of the general motors mm-hmm. of the of that of that world um and and so one of the things that is behind all these things is the fundamental technology and I think the mistake everybody's been making in the space in the new space business is focusing on building a new company with all this new technology and really it's hard enough to build a company and get a cash flow positive and, and build the team and keep everybody happy uh, you, 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 you want to really complicate your life and throw in 10 technology problems you can't solve that are very expensive to solve You've got a real problem on your hands, so we've taken a different approach to this, and you know we, we've we bought some technology, we've licensed some technology, and so that's the approach we're going to take. And uh, over time, you know, we'll, we'll we'll develop some of that in our in, internally, but uh, we just like uh, the the services we want to provide to the rest of the industry, 
it's something that you build upon. It's like a pyramid. Yep. And uh, ultimately, the use case of how somebody's making money with the consumer is at the top of that pyramid. We still think that the bottom of the pyramid is still being built. I agree. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for taking the time. My uh, pleasure. I'm sure everyone appreciates it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on the iTunes app. Tip your barista. And we'll see you next week for more Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm.